This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience. Uh, I'm here with Michael Grenke of St. John's College, Annapolis. Um, and we're here in a little bit of an unusual situation. Um, we're here to discuss a book, but it's not Michael's book. It's a book by a woman named Lise Van Boxel called War Speak, Nietzsche's Victory Over Nihilism. Uh, I believe Michael has a copy if you want to hold it up so people can see. Um, Michael, rather than me ham-fistedly summarize it, could you explain why this unusual situation? Why are you and I talking about somebody, uh, another person's book? Maybe, maybe because that story in itself is interesting and, of course, tragic. Yeah, well, Lise Van Boxel was my very close friend for more than a quarter of a decade, and we uh, shared significant portions of our personal life and especially our professional interests, since we were both very interested in Nietzsche. Uh, I inherited the book because shortly after the book was accepted for publication, Lise was diagnosed with uh, lung cancer of a very aggressive sort, and she died about six weeks uh, after that. Uh, I was with her at that time and uh, helping to take care of her while she was approaching treatment, hoping for some kind of cure. Uh, during the time, even when she was getting radiation and uh, other kinds of treatment for her cancer, she was still very concerned with the form of this book. And I think she intended to write an introduction for it that would uh, try to present it in uh, clearer and blunter fashion and even suggested that I might write that for her, even if she were to survive. So uh, when she died, I inherited the book and, and saw, oversaw its publication, the, you know, approved the final editing, which was very minimal and wrote the introduction for the book. So when she died, at what stage was the book? In other words, was it, it was already accepted. It was in the, it was in the last stages of, in a sense, editing before publication is, so she knew yeah. it was being published and it was coming out. Yeah, that's right. She knew that. Thank God. Um, yeah. The only part that hadn't been done was that the introduction that she intended to add. And we had an occasion to talk about what she wanted. And, and again, I said, as I said, she, uh, because of the difference, I think, between her and myself and our nature and our mode of expression, she was even considering having me write the introduction, even if she, she were still there. Understood. Understood. Can you say a few things about her as a scholar? Not necessarily uh, Lisa, nature, but generally, what kind of scholar was Dr. Van Boxel? Yeah, uh, she was uh, an unusually forceful and... <laughs> how would I put it, a serious thinker who wanted mostly to access the great works of the great minds directly without mediation through many commentaries. I think to some degree that fit so her academic God position. Paid for a person like her. Yes. Yep. Yes, very much. Uh, and she had a background in uh, literature as well. So her undergraduate degree was in, in literature and political science, political philosophy. So she had uh, some penchant for literary analysis, which I think helps very much in trying to unpack the, the various modes of Nietzsche's thought. She was also uh, probably uh, a bit obsessive and would think about particular passages over and over and over. Um, 
and often tell me about that thinking over and over and over. Um, was Nietzsche her main object of study or was she more, more, I mean, St. John's, you kind of have to be a generalist because you have to teach across the curriculum. But in terms of her research, is Nietzsche pretty much what she does or is she more broadly do continental philosophy? Well, I, I, it really was a focus on Nietzsche. And I think the few things that she managed to publish, the few articles and book chapters were on, on Nietzsche. Maybe one remarkable uh, book chapter she published on Tocqueville. On Tocqueville. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting. It's a pretty Nietzschean reading of Tocqueville, if I could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and maybe say one more thing for people who don't know. I said St. John's was made for a person like her. Could you say a little bit about St. John's and for people who may not be aware, um, um, we're talking about St. John's College, United States. We're not talking about St. John's College at, at Oxford. Um, yeah. um, um, could you say a little bit about what's the way in which St. John's is, is distinctive? Uh, so St. John's is a, a four-year uh, undergraduate college that has an entirely mandatory curriculum. So the students have, it, in essence at least, their entire course of learning laid out for them, no, no electives to choose. And every single one of the students takes four years of mathematics, four years of language, three years of uh, laboratory science, one year of music, and they have a four year reading course through the great works of philosophy, history, and literature of the Western tradition. Understood. And those who teach there are uh, generally called tutors, not professors, and they are asked uh, from year to year to move throughout the program and teach different uh, subjects. So you have to be sort of far ranging and also willing to be a genuine amateur at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about the book. Um, War Speak, Nietzsche's Victory Over Nihilism. Now, the first thing I want to ask you, and I'm, I know much less about Nietzsche than you, but I'm going to sometimes pretend that I know less than even I know for the sake of the audience. <laughs> I think there's a very common impression amongst the somewhat, but not particularly well, very familiar with Nietzsche public, that Nietzsche is, a is himself a nihilist. Sure. Okay? So maybe let's enter into this by correcting that misperception, if it is indeed one, or discussing the ways in which it's complicated. Her book is about Nietzsche's victory over nihilism, and let yes, there's a popular uh, perception that Nietzsche was a nihilist. Can you uh, unconfuse that for us? Well, like many popular conceptions, it's not entirely... Um, certain that one can unconfuse them. But I, I'll say this. Uh, there are many uh, existing institutions and also dogmatic structures of opinion and thought that Nietzsche, in his critical modes, assaulted. And so I think most of the impression that Nietzsche is a nihilist comes from the sense that he tears down what has already been in existence, that he's, uh, he's an annihilator of sorts. Yeah. And there's no way to deny that that's uh, the case with Nietzsche. He is uh, engaged in a, in a considerable critical project to expose 
and uh, many of the lack of foundations or bad foundations upon which many opinions have been built. And so I think there's a lot about Nietzsche, which is tearing things down. And that tends to make a big impression. In fact, in some ways, it's a sideshow that many people who wish to be freed from from various authorities like to see Nietzsche criticize them and, and reduce their foundation. So part, part let me just, I'm just, let me just interrupt. Yeah. Part of the misimpression of Nietzsche is because people are in a sense using him for their purposes, right? And 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 that's that's often the cause of misperception of philosophers' work is that people, in a sense, take people who have their own agendas take up portions, right, um, without the whole. Um, and so I guess if you're if you're a partisan of the traditional forms that Nietzsche is getting rid of wants to get rid of then as far as you're concerned, you may as well just say he's a nihilist because even if, even if he told you what he was going to replace it with, you wouldn't accept it. Is that sort of the, is that sort of the idea? I think that's very much the case. How would I put it? Uh, things that already exist that Nietzsche is tearing down uh, have their um, defenders and also the, those who benefit from them. And those, those individuals are not interested in traveling on Nietzsche's path, right? And they would certainly like to... Um, discredit him i think they regardless of bus, they get off the bus at the god is dead or whatever or, or at the, sure. or the because that's the only part of it that they want sort of is that, <laughs> that, um um what is what is meant by nine so if we want to understand this correctly right yeah what is meant by what does lee's mean by nihilism and by extension, what, is, what does Nietzsche mean by nihilism? If he uses that expression or whatever expression he uses that Lees is translating as nihilism. Yeah, so Nietzsche certainly uses uh, that expression pretty much the German as a cognate for that. Uh, but I think in the genealogy of morals, which Lees's book is a, a substantially a very close reading of Nietzsche's on the genealogy of morals, in that book, Nietzsche describes what he calls nihilism today. It's part of the genealogical approach, I think, is predicated on the thought that uh, all the beings in the world are really things that are in motion, undergoing change. And each, each later iteration is the inheritor of a morphologically transformed version of its predecessor. So nihilism itself, I think, for Nietzsche has a history, a course through which it it proceeds, maybe for 2,000 or more years, really. And the nihilism that's contemporaneous, the nihilism today, is what Nietzsche presents in On the Genealogy of Morals as human beings having become uninteresting to themselves, having become weary of the prospects of humanity, And I think particularly Nietzsche and Lies connect this to a long campaign that has presented otherworldly hopes as better than the world that we live in, and thereby demoting and degrading our interest in the world of things that change and the things that come into being and pass away, like ourselves, like everything that's alive. Okay. This is, this is fascinating. I already have a hundred questions and I'm trying to be careful to not turn this into a conversation about Nietzsche per se, because I want to talk about 
You know? Lise is Nietzsche, not Nietzsche. Well, so I, let me just say that yes. Lise really pu puts this understanding of nihilism as world weariness, weariness or despair with regard to hu the human future at, to the forefront. But she does, she derives it from something that Nietzsche says explicitly, but is seldom really noted, I would say, in the in the world of people paying attention to Nietzsche. And that's a, a vast world of many people publishing many things. They talk about nihilism differently than Nietzsche himself does. And Lisa's faithful. So let me ask you about it. Um, there's a fascinating discussion in the book about how the appeal to the transcendent diminishes the imminent right i mean in, in other mm -hmm. words in other words and you get this both in plato you get this in in the whole tradition comes up and of course you get it in christianity right um i would suggest and maybe this is something that's worth exploring or not that nietzsche's understanding of the relationship of judaism and christianity is very unsophisticated to the point of being ignorant right he doesn't understand that Judaism, you know, he, it seems to me he blames Judaism for a lot of the things that are, in my view, distinctive of Christianity and actually are barely a part of Judaism at all. Judaism is not focused on the transcendent. It is focused entirely on the practical and the imminent. It has no, no real eschatology or conception of the afterlife. Yes, it does identify perfection with God and stuff, but it's all mitigated through Torah and through rabbinics, right? So I feel a little bit like Nietzsche's picture of what he's critiquing is, is an ahistorical caricature. And for somebody who's claiming to be engaged in genealogy, it feels to me more like fictional history. Um, um, and I don't know whether, whether you think, what you think of that and whether it's relevant or not. But that was one of the things I noticed is that a lot of what he's talking about strikes me as very much obviously true of Plato and Christianity. But I've read the genealogy and um, he ultimately saddles the Jews with all of this. At, at least it seems like he does. And I find that to be a very odd thing if you actually know something about Judaism, right? Yeah, so there's, uh, <clears throat> I think part of the story is centered in the Jews for, for Nietzsche, um, but it's centered in maybe a way, I hope this addresses some of your concern in a way to say that behind the uh, the Torah is an older history that to some degree is being revealed in glimpses in the Torah, but in many respects is covered over. And that's a history of a, of a conflict within Jewish communities between priestly castes and warrior castes. So some of the how would I say the speculative likely story of the, the prehistorical bases for a, a slave revolt and morality, Nietzsche suggests happened in its most prominent and major way within the Jewish people. Uh, a, a division between warriors and priests and a, and a fight for, for ascendancy between them. So I think Nietzsche sees, for instance, in, uh, Book of Kings or things like this, hints of an older tradition, of an older story of, of the Jews that he's to some degree. So he's not really to... talking about Judaism, he's talking about the ancient Hebrews. Yes, that's correct. That's that's really correct. Right, because yeah. Judaism is rabbinic. 
right? I mean, it's, yes. not, it's not the ancient Hebrews. As a matter of fact, Judaism doesn't believe you can even read the Torah without going through the lens of, of the Talmudic literature. Um, and I was so struck by this point about the transcendent. That's really yeah. what I was sort of fixated on. Um, and this idea that because you identify the good with the transcendent, you thereby direct focus away from goods in the imminent, right? Goods yes, in that's the right. world in which we live, the lives in which we engage. And that is a kind of nihilism, right? Um, but it, but this is, is ca categorically untrue of rabbinical Judaism, right? It's the opposite, right? Um, 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 so he, he, he must be talking about ancient Israelite uh, religion. I would argue that we don't really nearly know enough about ancient Israelite religion as it was practiced for Nietzsche to say probably 90% of the things that he says. We just don't, we just don't know that, right? I mean, um, um, by any historical standard, um, um, that's sort of almost in the area of myth. But I don't think I mean, Nietzsche minds that much, does he? If, if we evoke history and it's somewhat mythological, because those all affect the development of culture and civilization, right? Certainly, yeah. So I, I think you're, you're right. And their interaction? Hmm. I, I think maybe the general point you make about Nietzsche and, and myth is certainly correct. And, and so, for instance, uh, how would I say it? Nietzsche's not above lying um, at times because in cases where he thinks no one could know the truth. To does make he, does, make does things he, up. Does he think that we have historical knowledge of antiquity? Some. In the modern sense of knowing? Well, I, the things that he actually points to are uh, what he calls uh, sort of hieroglyphics embedded in primitive language. And I think he, he does regard it as a matter of um, speculation rather than knowledge, probably, although there's just awareness of some etymological links and their possibilities, which is probably in the realm of knowledge, yeah. leads to speculation that might inform the way we, we understand the, the lives for which we have no firm historical record. Yeah, I'm going to get back to Lee. I know yeah. I'm doing, I seem like I'm doing what I said I wasn't going to do, and that is interrogating Nietzsche, but I almost feel like to get back to Lee's, we have to establish something basic things about Nietzsche that I'm, I'm, I want to be sure that I'm getting that I'm getting right. Um, um, so this idea that the identification of the good with the transcendent diminishes the actual world and the lives we live in it, and that is a kind of nihilism. I actually think that's a, a, a powerful point, um, and one I entirely I entirely agree with. Um, um, and I've written things like that myself in a different vein. Um, Explain to me, because Lee's talks about this, and again, Lee's exposition, I, I find her writing really excellent. Um, her writing, I think, is in some ways better than Nietzsche's in the sense that it's certainly clearer. Um, but Lee's does talk a bit about this, um, this uh, Nietzsche's idea that philosophy just is genealogy. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could explain that a little bit, because when I read through this portion of Lee's book, I immediately wrote in the note, all of it, right? Because <laughs> right. I can immediately off the top of my head think about 10 major philosophical questions that I don't see how you could in any way construe them genealogic as genealogy. So 
and ba very basic ones, ones that intro students could, could repeat to you, right? So is he being rhetorical or does he really mean that? But then I need to hear a story about how, you know, the question of, you know, a gazillion philosophy questions that everybody knows about turn out to be genealogical questions. Yeah, I, I think, uh, how to say, I assume the questions are themselves expressed in language and maybe that's where I would start. Um, so like, here's a question. Yeah. Is truth correspondence? Mm -hmm. How's that a genealogical question? So I mean, of course are... it has a history, but so does everything, right? I mean, what, what makes yeah. it a genealogical question? You know, the argument between let's say deflationists and correspondence theorists, what, what does genealogy have to do with, with that? There, I would probably be inclined to say you 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 say they have a history, and in this respect, those questions have perhaps a, a developmental history. That is, the form that they have today is a descendant of the forms in which they've had before. This is really the genealogical approach to history. I want to say that. Everything, including every thought or opinion that comes into being, comes from previously existing things and comes into being as a modification of previously existing things. So nothing comes from nowhere. That's probably just the, the basic tenet that there's no ex nihilo in the, in the, uh, in the most precise sense. And so even a question like the whether truth is correspondence is embedded, I think, in the history of what is what has been meant by truth, the meanings that are associated with the, the form of that word, but also possibly even the transformations in the form of that, the, the words that we use for truth. So that's the sort of thing that I think Nietzsche has in mind, but also that Lise highlights, uh, she, I think she approvingly quotes Nietzsche when, when he says, Anything that has a history cannot be given a definition. And that, by that, I think he means not any simple static definition. You want, in order to do justice to things that are growing, changing, developing, one needs to try to instantiate literary forms that match that growth or that trace that growth, at least through stages, um, and that try to mitigate the the extent to which language itself gives the impression of lasting or permanence. Um, that's really the, that otherworldly character that seems to be uh, embedded in the metaphysics of, of reason itself or of logic itself. This point about the transcendent and the imminent is related to the claim that philosophy is genealogical because it seemed in Lisa's account that it is related in the sense that mm -hmm. um, to approach philosophical questions abstractly is almost to presume the transcendent, right? Because according to Nietzsche, the imminent can't be, can't be approached abstractly. The thing is, I don't know if, it, is that actually true? I don't <laughs> know if I think that's true, right? I mean, I mean, in other words, if that's true, then there's no such thing as the genetic fallacy, right? And of course there is, right? I mean, I can give examples of it very easily. Did Nietzsche think there was no such thing as the genetic fallacy? And what would his reply be if you said, 
well, your whole work is just a giant exercise in the genetic fallacy, right? <laughs> you're not answering the question that these people are asking. You're changing the question. Now, that's maybe an interesting question, but it doesn't answer the first question, and it doesn't explain why the first question doesn't require an answer, right? Yeah, so I, I don't think Nietzsche intends uh, the genealogical approach to be some way to avoid a question, although there are questions that are, how would I say, in his mind, one might say corrupt. The, the very asking of them is, is trying to frame things in, in terms of uh, the eternal or the permanent in a way that's inappropriate. So there's that. But I think maybe this is the strongest answer. Why does, why does one have to talk about where something came from and, and how it became what it is? in order to talk about what it is. And there I want to say that there's built into maybe the, the way things have come into being, especially this, I think, some accidents, some things that no reasoning about them could have predicted. Mm. So just as in our bodies, there are parts which really have uh, no clear relation or function to the rest of our organism, but they're there because of the course of development that came about. And one comes to see why, why we are the way we are. Maybe, for instance, why we might be something like three brains on top of one another attached by a bunch of connections. That we can see that the earlier, or, or some of the, the organs, the very machines that, that we have, have in our physical being really belong to earlier ages. And then Nietzsche, to some degree, reaches for thought that way too, right? If the thought is the motion of these machines. Yeah, no, I can see that. You said something a, while, a little bit ago that when I sort of said, ah, that, that sort of, I, I started to see it. So the idea is sort of like, just as there's a danger in abstraction losing the reality of let's say organic life or concepts and thoughts and ideas and language are also alive in the sense that they yes. they they they're like organisms and are similarly i don't want to say abused but similarly um mistreated maybe by abstraction um um and and you know this is something i've i've i'm i'm, I'm at least instinctively sympathetic to it let me ask, I mean, this, if, if you don't have an answer to this, it's fine. I mean, I'm almost hearing something a little bit like Nietzsche would be sympathetic to something like the later Wittgenstein's approach to concepts. Like the, the later Wittgenstein, yeah. The resemblances, there are no yes. definitions, there are forms of life, grammars change radically depending on the framework. And, and it sounds to me, and I'm wondering whether I got to go back and re-go re, re look at my Wittgenstein again, but I got to remember whether he actually explicitly evokes Nietzsche ever. Um, 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 because this sounds a lot like some of Wittgenstein's opposition to formal semantics and other, you know, this is a living thing and you're trying to treat it like a formal language, right? <laughs> Um, or maybe I'd point at uh, that what he's getting at. You think Nietzsche? I, I think there's some there's some uh, pro there probably would be some agreement with uh, Vic the Wittgenstein of the philosophical investigations. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
But I would have maybe just pointed to Foucault, uh, madness and civilization. Yeah. And of course, Foucault understands himself to be a, in some way a, a follower of Nietzsche and uh, a follower of uh, genealogical method. Yeah, the, the archaeology of the human sciences, that's the whole thing yeah. about, is about the genealogical method, right? I mean, right. yeah, yeah, I read that as an undergraduate, sure, yeah. Well, and I'm not, uh, I wouldn't usually point to Foucault as uh, a particularly great exemplar of what Nietzsche has in mind, but I, I think with regard to the argument about the stigma, the stigmatization of madness, being in a certain way inherited from the buildings that housed the insane. Fascinating. That is the former leprosariums. Yeah. So because lepers once dwelt in these buildings and there's a stigma and fear attached to leprosy, Foucault's argument is that there comes to be a kind of accident of just the use of these buildings later as asylums. Mm that attaches this stigma to madness. Now, I'm, I don't want to say I'm fully even convinced by this, but this is something of the sort of thing. I understand the point. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about the second half of, of the title. Yeah. War speak. Could you talk a little bit about war speak? What is war speak? Why is that the title? It seems to me that this element of, of it is part of what, if we were to ask what's distinctive about Lisa's approach approach to mm -hmm. the genealogy, something about the choice and use of the word war speak seems to me part of what's distinctive about her approach. Could you say something about the title, the main title? So the, the title, I think, emerges out of, I think, a somewhat loose and playful translation Nietzsche that least made of, of the subtitle of the genealogy of morals. So it's a, a, a Streitschrift, yeah. which is some kind of... Please. Yeah, I thought that was really yeah. interesting. So that's where Lise gets the idea for that particular term, war speak. But she has in mind, I think, that the polemical character of Nietzsche's writing is not some kind of blemish that needs to be corrected when you're trying to understand exactly what he's saying, but that it's, it's part of trying to inculcate certain warrior-like virtues that are important both for being uh, maximally alive and for pursuing philosophic endeavors. And I think maybe the, the crux of the well, there's a number of virtues of war, warriors, especially courage. But the crux, I think, of the, the connection of what makes warriors so important in, in Lisa's thinking is that they combine a proximity to danger, willingness to take risks and to dwell in risky situations with a kind of lightheartedness, a kind of... Um, joy in their situation, that they, they can make jokes, that they can dance where their footing is not very well secured. It's especially uh, represented, I think, in the, the part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra called On Reading and Writing, where, which Nietzsche made use of in the third essay of the Genealogy of Morals. That is, one who wants to combine someone who feels uh, great 
lightheartedness with someone who's in very serious and heavy situations that might be quite dangerous. And I think that's, that's meant to be the kind of unusual combination that's demanded of particularly philosophically frightening path-making, going where in a new direction on, on as yet untrodden pathways. Um, when, when, when was the genealogy written? Well, it's uh, published in 1886. So. Okay, so very, very late 19th century. Yeah. So industrialization is full is under full full blown. We're not all that far off from the First World War. Um, right. It's funny listening to you characterize Nietzsche's characterization of the warrior. All I could think about is how unbelievably romanticized and ahistorical it is. I can't imagine that if Nietzsche had lived to see the First World War, he would still cling to that sort of notion of the warrior and and sort of ennoble ennoblement of violence and mass destruction and mass killing, right? I mean, I mean, is that is that a fault of his? Do you think? Um, do you think he didn't see it, or do you think there is a streak of kind of the not so great kind of romanticism? <laughs> <laughs> um, the oh. kind that kind of ennobles things that are really bloody awful to anybody who actually knows anything about them, right? Um, like being in wars. <laughs> um, no so one Nietzsche was tell you is anything but miserable, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I find warriors, uh, well, soldiers, to say quite quite various things. I'll put it that way. But um, Nietzsche was in the Franco-Prussian War. Okay, so. Um, he was, I think most of his service was hospital service, but, uh, because he had an injury, he was in cavalry and got injured and then served in the hospital corps. But he even was a volunteer for that war. So he was living in, in Switzerland and went back to, to, to serve. But do you think so? He saw. I mean, and I think he saw the meat grinder. Uh, so did he see? Did he see mechanized industrialized warfare? Because it's hard for me to imagine that somebody could retain any ennobling pretensions about war after seeing the Somme, right? Or about after seeing, you know, mm -hmm. unless they are just either terrible people, right, or no, no. Or, or or demented, right? I mean, I mean, um, and maybe this is an element of his mental ill health no i mean it, it could i mean there's always i guess a, a question lurking over Nietzsche what might be connected to his his mental illness yeah, um, yeah. that's i think a question that never resolves itself clearly so i What's i don't assign anything to it of war speak was i thought yeah. and maybe i got the wrong impression but i thought that what the significance of the title in part was related to this issue of the genealogical as opposed to let's call it the rationalistic or mm. uh, a platonic approach. Um, 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 and that is that once you're out of the realm of logical space, mm. then arguments really become a kind of warfare, right? Um, um, they, 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 they take on a combative quality rather than a, than a, than a, um, collective truth searching exercise which is what rational argumentation is supposed to be right 
um, which is why it focuses and emphasizes warrant, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, is precisely because the point is not to win something, it's to discover what's true. Now, when you scrap that for the genealogical approach, I mean, one of the things that happens is that argumentation or disputation becomes warfare, right? Because there is no truth separate from the conflicts, right? Um, 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 that's what I thought the war speak was about, was a sort of a, an emphasis on the fundamentally rhetorical nature of argumentation once you abandon the idea of rational or logical space, right? Yeah. Is, that, is that incorrect? I, I don't, I want to say it's maybe partially incorrect. <laughs> I got to see, I got to see on my paper. <laughs> well, in this respect, I, I think, I didn't say this, but I, I was emphasizing, I think, the need for a, a, a kind of rhetoric that engage, that infused itself with warrior, presumptively warrior virtue. But essentially, at least paints the picture that there has already been a warfare being conducted, a psychological subterranean warfare. A lot of that has been conducted through supposed rationalism. So could you give some examples? Because this is where I always find Nietzsche sounding really conspiratorial in a way that mm -hmm. me undermines the credibility mm -hmm. of what he's saying. Could you give some, could you counter that inclination by being more specific perhaps and a bit more explicit about what you mean by conspiracy? Well, I, 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 of how a question is, a, is really a clandestine effort of psychological warfare, you know, sure. anyone you like. Yeah. Well, I think there, uh, maybe what Nietzsche has to say about Socratic dialectic is a, a kind of example. But please say, give us, a, he, give us an easy version of that. Okay, so I think Nietzsche presents uh, the aristocratic modes of, of use of language to mo mostly consist of the giving of commands. Language is used by people who have uh, authority built into them, maybe according to their, their place in society or, or their, well, just their social relationships, like parents, for instance, who are used to telling children, what to do. And maybe also like people who are used to being trusted. So if somebody claims they've done something, they expect as a matter of their position in the world to be trusted and not to have to explain or defend their claims. So there's two orders of language use that involve just commanding on the one hand and expecting to be obeyed. And on the other, of asserting things that one expects others will trust. And Nietzsche sees Socrates enter into aristocratic Greek society as someone who says to people who are expect to be believed when they, when they make claims, like might be asked them, what is justice? They say what they think and they expect that's going to be accepted by that crowd. Socrates makes a demand that they give a, a a fully rationally found, founded account. This approach itself is fundamentally uh, sort of undermining of the trust and the authority that's assumed in, in the previous uses of language. So 
it assaults the very status of the people involved. It's like coming to dinner and, and uh, disputing your host regarding their claims about their own family and things like this. And I assume Nietzsche thinks this is a bad thing. It's a mixed bag, uh, how would I say it? Down the road. Why that's any different than what Nietzsche claims to be doing. I mean, in other words, there's a kind of a cheap gotcha move, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where, you know, um, you know, I'm trying to overthrow some, some, some injustice, right? And then you say that, well, my overthrowal is just the same as the injustice, right? Because it involves doing A, B, C, D, or E, right? And what that just means is that it winds up being impossible to ever overthrow any injustice, right? I mean, I mean, it, it sounds a little cheap, right? I mean, um, um, I mean, I could, I would say in reply, if someone said this to me, well, it would seem to me that what Socrates is doing is saying, let's see if you actually have any actual authority as opposed to simply mere power, right? Right. I mean, are you rightfully exercising power? If so, you should be able to explain yourself. Right. Is this just I'm bigger than you? And so you're going to do what I say. Um, And why isn't that the right thing to do to interrogate authority? Right. I mean, um, um, I I guess everything that you just described, I'm saying right on. Sure. sure. Nietzsche's unhappy with it. And I'd like to know why. Right. I, I think in Nietzsche's analysis, it's not what people who were you who uh, were used to being trusted would do. That is, and it's for instance, I, I think you could you see progress? that this isn't that how you get progress? Isn't that how you get women out of the kitchen? Isn't that how? You, <laughs> isn't that how you get gay marriage? I mean, I don't understand how you get any progress otherwise. Oh well, I think th- there might be many other ways, but it. The first it's, thing, at least, is demand reasons of the purported authorities, no? In some ways, it's destructive of the very faith in authorities. I mean, you could look at all the advances you mentioned. They come at a cost, and that's really what Nietzsche is pointing to. They come at a cost. They diminish the kinds of relationships that trusted other things about human life. So... Sounds like we, we trust less just like as a consequence. Sounds, sounds like a reactionary. That's what it sounds like. Well, that might be. Um, but I, I guess I find, the, you know, if, a rea- if being a reactionary is the only way in which one describes this, you're not considering the possibility that in order to attain the goods you, you wish for, you're, you're losing some goods. That's and Nietzsche is interested in conserving those goods if he can and bringing them forward into conditions where the new goods that have been acquired are also preserved. Yeah. That's really the affirmative, I, what I would t- usually refer to loosely as Nietzsche's recycling project. He really doesn't actually, he's not really for and against anything in the world. He, he holds himself, I think, to the standard that everything should be made uh, as good as it everything should be turned to some kind of good use. Whatever comes into existence should be turned in some way to some kind of good use. And so he's not really wanting to throw things away. If there's an old institution that has many either corruptions or even bad uses that are built into it, Nietzsche's approach, I think, is isn't there something good that can be used, made? And it, wasn't there something good that the human beings who formed this institution were seeking for themselves? Yeah. Can that 
thing be preserved. Yeah. Okay. So maybe not a reactionary, but certainly a conservative. Uh, I think a conservative of things that he thinks are good and every, wanting every to conserve everything. Every conservative thinks that the things they want to conserve are good, right? I mean, that's the easiest thing in the world to say. I mean, everybody thinks that about what they think is good. The question is, can you actually make a persuasive case, right? Right. <laughs> that persuades people who don't already agree with you, right? I mean, yeah. I, mean I, guess, I guess what you're describing Nietzsche as hoping for just strikes me as the sort of trade-offs that anyone who's like over 13 or 14 understands that everything in life comes with, right? I mean, um, that no, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yes, sometimes if you want to move forward, you're going to have to let things, some things go that you liked, right? Um, um, but, you know, when you say something like faith and authority, to me, that's oxymoronic, right? You have faith in Kim Jong-un, right? <laughs> as being the descendant of the God of the God, right? You, a, a real authority doesn't require faith. A real authority is, has, has the right to exercise power. And that's because they can, they, 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 we can justify it, right? We can offer some rationale that's publicly, that's publicly accessible that, that, that can appeal to, to other people's reason, no? I think there might be fewer of those uh, rationales available than you think. Or I would say it. I would think that by, by the standard you mentioned, there would be no one who deserves authority. Hmm. Well, no, okay. Okay. Um, war speak, the value, the, 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 the sort of the, the allegation that that the way we've been thinking about value has been so dominated by this idea of transcendence um, that it's caused us to turn away from the good things in the world. Um, another question I had while reading Lisa's book was, there's this great, the, the whole, all the sections where she's um, talking about um, the relationship between the transcendent God and, 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 and philosophy and all of that is really very interesting. But one of the things that I wrote in the margins that um, I wondered about is that, you know, Nietzsche's writing late into the industrial revolution, all right, well into the industrial revolution, which means we're already well past the enlightenment. And it's interesting to me that what he react, what he's reacting to are these archaic Christian, and in other words, now I understand, and maybe you can rehearse it for us, that he thinks that the utilitarians are just a modern version that had simply imported all of these old, mm -hmm. and that's fine. And maybe, and maybe just for the audience, you could just repeat, you know, rehearse that for a second for mm -hmm. us. But here's something that it strikes me cannot be characterized that way of which Nietzsche must have been aware, and that's Hume, okay? Now, Hume's subjectivism and his naturalism, I don't see how any of it is touched by Nietzsche's critique. And I don't see why Nietzsche's, why Nietzsche's take on it is better than Hume's. Hume strikes me as far more sophisticated and far more realistic, right? If you want to talk about psychology, right? Then all these romantic yearnings about the ancients and about this and you know dubious histories and all this kind of stuff how about just the nuts and bolts 
of human sentiments, right? Right? Taking advantage of the actual science that you do know, right? <laughs> that you did acquire, right? And there's no engagement with Hume at all, right? It seems to me with, with, with Humean emotivism, really, right? It's all, about, it's all about utilitarians and Kantians where I see how you can kind of slag them with the, the transcendent stuff. Why do you think that is? Or do you think he does have a reply to modern naturalistic emotivism? Is he a virtue ethicist? Does he really just want to go back to kind of Aristotle? What, what's going on there? Well, I can see many reasons why maybe uh, Nietzsche might be more inclined to uh, pay attention to Aristotle than Hume. But I, I think this, there's a, a sort of subtle psychological claim that Nietzsche is making. I think that even Hume's um, devotion to trying to say things the way they are is infused with a kind of otherworldly notion of what's true. And that's, I think, the place where, if any place, Nietzsche tries to take on someone like, like Hume. That is, at the, near the very end of the, the genealogy, I think Nietzsche takes up the so-called practitioners of science who think of themselves as non-religious, who still have what Nietzsche regards, I think, as a hangover from the, the religion that is a devotion to a commitment to truth at all costs. There he thinks again, he sees the a denial of this world. So I, I think on that ground alone, Hume would stand convicted. I mean, that, that is that Hume would stand convicted of not understanding himself, not understanding really why he does what he does. Hmm. Interesting. Um, let's, um, let's do this. Why don't we do this? Um, in this book, what would you say, in, in Lisa's book, what would you say, give, I'm not going to name a number. Tell me some of the, what you think are distinctively Lee's takes on Nietzsche with regard to these subjects that we're talking about that you think are really what sort of make, make, make this book valuable, right? What is she bringing to the table on these topics that we're talking about with regard to Nietzsche? And I want to emphasize to everyone, my, my, my knowledge is so rudimentary that what we've been talking about is probably at like the gen ed level, right, of this, right? Um, um, what, what is she bringing in this book to the topics we're talking about at a very basic level that you think is really important in Nietzsche's scholarship? I think there's a, let's say, there's an impression at the end of the genealogy that's divided into three essays. And at the end of the third essay, there's an impression that um, Nietzsche has left something undone, that he's pointing to a later work that is that this work on the genealogy of morals is not itself a genealogy of morality. And I think 
least traces a number of literary clues where the same phrase is repeated in each of the three essays to try to make an argument that that expected or projected genealogy is in at least in a formal manner actually carried out in the second book. So, or the second essay. So that's really one of the very big distinctive ways of reading this book. I think she also makes a very uh, unusual argument for the centrality of the genealogy of morals within Nietzsche's corpus uh, that you generally wouldn't see, I think, in the in the the general Nietzsche scholarship, which tends to regard uh, Thus Book Zarathustra or Beyond Good and Evil, especially as a primary work. And it, it takes a clue from the way the genealogy first appeared, I think, is presented as a supplement to the uh, to Beyond Good and Evil, and takes that clue as a kind of indication that this is really a secondary work. Lee shows, I think, that this work is focused on the central problem of nihilism for Nietzsche, and that it offers uh, a clear, ver a relatively clear version of his solution to that problem. Maybe I'd say one last thing about that then. There's in the third essay, Lise points out, I think that Nietzsche introduces the question, what is the meaning of the ascetic ideal? And then goes through a series of answers about what it has, what the ideal has meant to uh, seven different varieties of human beings or classes of human beings. I think in the working through the details of that, Lee tries to show how Nietzsche tries to take each of the seven meanings that different classes of human beings have found in the ascetic ideal, which leads to nihilism, and show that there was some specific life-promoting purpose or attraction of the ascetic ideal for each of these classes. And then she tries to show a way in which Nietzsche is trying to weave those seven different kinds of life affirm affirmations of expressions of the living impulse of different kinds of people with different needs to try to weave it into some kind of comprehensive whole that could evolve an affirmative ideal that would stand as a, a viable rival to the, to the nihilistic ideal. Is that summarizable? In other words, could you, could you, no, I didn't mean that as snark. I don't mean that at all. I mean, I, no, I just, that what I mean, I guess what I mean is, is there a pithy way to articulate what Lee's thinks Nietzsche's solution to the nihilism problem is? I think that's it's not is, simply maybe. doing the genealogy, right? It's not that once no, you no. once you really do the genealogy, it's not like a Wittgenstein dissolution of a problem. That once you've done the analysis, there is still the problem. There is still the the matter of a reconstruction of value, right? That's right. Uh, no, could you tell me right. what Lee's is? Is there a way to formulate relatively concisely what Lee's take on Nietzsche's solution is? Yeah. So I mean, the big problem with the nihilism of weariness is that. Um, the living beings are going to invest their will in something, even if that is that something is negative, even if it means, for instance, tearing themselves apart or leading themselves down pathways of decline, they're going to, the will is going to attach itself to some project. And that's been the, the sort of tragedy of the nihilistic approaches. 
So the task, I think, is to evolve a, a project that people could still believe in that hasn't been worn out. And there, I think, Lise it, uh, shows two things. One is, I think, a what she presents as a formal notion of a supreme good of superabundant super vitality, of the combination of the various modes of human expression that combine, I think, what is sought for back in the, the image of the warrior as some kind of happiness in precarious situations, even self-satisfaction, even if, by the way, even if it turns out to be romantic or unrealistic, at least that's an image of a kind of being that's experiencing itself as uh, mm. fulfilling. Mm. And that's what gets lost when we erode trust, amongst other things, is even our ability to, be, to feel fulfilled. That's sought in combination, I think, with the development of the furthering of this, this rational project, which in, initially appears as an assault on human satisfaction and health, and it often is. It's an assault on self-satisfaction that's not adequate. But I think Lisa's trying to find a way in which one can put together, again, some kind of self-satisfaction with our, our sophisticated notions of what we can demand of ourselves and of others, uh, of the kinds of accounts giving that we want and that we, we have come to expect and combine that with still being able, for instance, to, to trust something, ourselves included, to trust, for instance, our own inner constitution, our own urges, our own natural drives. So that's the, the, the picture, I think, of finding some kind of superabundant vitality as a formal supreme good. And then at least shows, I think, concrete manifestations of that supreme good that she thinks all living beings, including human beings, could inform, agree upon, and sketches out uh, a pathway of human life in, instantiated in a kind of development of philosophy that actually goes beyond this warrior spirit. Okay. So to find philosophic life as a model for, for the lives that human beings could aspire to and find affirming. Let me ask you something about this. Okay. Because I detect in Nietzsche, I don't want to call it a hatred, but something like a hatred of Mill. Of Mill, yeah. What you just said sounds an awful like to me like experiments in living in a liberal society. I don't understand what, what it seems to me that if what you just said is true of Nietzsche, Nietzsche should love on liberty, should love it, right? Leap, let people experiment in, in life only exercise control over others in the most minimal sense possible when there is demonstrable, quantifiable harm. Otherwise, mm -hmm. leave people alone. Why? Because they're going to discover the best ways to live, right? What's his problem with Mill? Well, just I think it's just, probably... Just the hedonism? Or is it the liberalism, too, he objects to? I, th I think with regard to liberalism, I think there is some objection. So I'll, I'll leave the objection to hedonism aside, but which is probably an important one. And I'm going to ask something about that in a minute. So okay. just on the liberalism, 
What's yeah. the objection to the experiments and living model that you get in On Liberty and then the mm -hmm. liberalism that's necessary in order for that to be possible? I think what Nietzsche looks at um, political structures, he doesn't think that any one structure best suits or best serves uh, human experimentalism. And I, this is dangerous ground, I think, but he thinks sometimes um, compulsion is needed. That is, uh, how do I say, too much laissez-faire doesn't produce or promote human human progress as much as alternating periods of of more control, less freedom, and periods of freedom. So he really does, I think, seem to say a lot of the blossoming of freedom comes only after there's been considerable compulsion and constraint. Um. And so he's not in favor of one politics or the other. I, I think in, in a way, he opposes liberalism because he thinks in some ways, if it were the only politics and it lasted all forever, human life would stagnate rather than continue to progress. It's interesting that for someone so opposed to the transcendent and so concerned with, with doesn't live in reality. <laughs> in other words, in other words, three quarters, this just all sounds like longing for things that don't exist, can't exist. There's, there's no prudence involved here, right? There's no sense of, okay, well, you got to have something because tomorrow I got to go outside and walk down the street, right? And is there going to be a traffic light or isn't? In other, in other words, a lot of this stuff just strikes me. It sounds great. It, it's all very lofty. You can sit, sit there and bathe in it. Tomorrow when I go to the bank, excuse my French, it's fucking irrelevant, okay? It's the kind of thing, actually, I think that often gives philosophy a really bad name, right? I mean, in a sense, because, you know, we do, I mean, there has to be a politics of one kind or another, right? Mr. At, Nietzsche, at, but Mr. Nietzsche. At, at time. Okay. One at a time, sure. Right. Okay. So which one? Which one is it going to be? And, and our philosophers aren't going to weigh in on this. They're just going to say, well, you know, sometimes it's better to have Stalin and sometimes it's better to have FDR. And sometimes, okay, I guess, great, right? I was hoping to get more help from you, right? Um, um, but, you know, I guess I just, it all strikes me as so completely unmoored from reality. And Mill strikes me as much more realistic and much more grounded and that's odd, considering that he's supposedly invested in the transcendent, and Nietzsche's got the genealogy down. And yet, when I read Mill, I sound, read somebody that sounds practical and realistic. And as I listen to the stuff you're describing, it just sounds to me like a lot of abstract, vague, unmoored talk. Right? <laughs> what am I going to do next week? Right? We have I, a vote I, on I the think... bank We have a vote on the zoning regulations. Right? What are we supposed yeah. to do? Right. How do you help us with that? You don't. Right. <laughs> um, but that's the stuff that actually really matters. Right. On a day to day basis. Right. I mean, ask people. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, what immiser what immiserates you? It's going to be all those daily. It's not this little big. Oh, you know, I'm I'm too invested in the transcendent or I'm not. a. I don't know. I just I, I guess I, I want to say stuff. But then when I try to pin it down. 
it just all seems either incorrect or beside the point or you know give me good old boring liberalism some regulations to make sure you know you know kids aren't working in factories and that's about as good as you can do man right i mean (laughs) with 300 million people or whatever how many i mean do you think nietzsche just had was not realistic about you know how the world actually works i i don't think so but it it seems to me what you're describing might be compatible with a, a kind of transcendental attitude of that allows you to um, I want to say lower the expectations about what human beings can do. But I also guess I want to say attending to the little daily tasks with no sense that maybe they could be transformed can just leave people to lead out a life from birth to death that really didn't satisfy them and maybe on some wasn't even pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing, I, last thing I want to ask, um, um, because we're going, way, we're going over. Um, the problem with identifying the good with the transcendent is that it diminishes the imminent. It creates an, a kind of asceticism in that it's, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it encourages denial of bodily pleasure because the good is off, off somewhere else. Um, that creates a certain kind of morality and value system and so on and so forth. If Nietzsche had seen, been able, lived to see how completely, totally worldly we were going to become mm-hmm. in the age of mass consumption, overconsumption, hypercapitalism. Do you think he would have revised his story? It seems a little bit weird to describe mm-hmm. people. I'm not saying that they're not conflicted, but it's pretty weird to describe people today as overinvested in the transcendent. I'm not saying that there's no oh. element of that. It's certainly right. in our moral conflicts, there is, right? But if you look at, at the, the daily kind of, you know, what, I think it's far more true to say that we are so we are worldly to the point of of being of becoming jaded, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, we're swimming in. So, how do you square that, or is there an, a way of thinking about that 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 makes sense of what Nietzsche, the way Nietzsche is talking about this and the way Lisa specifically mm-hmm. casts it? I think uh, how would I say it? Or Nietzsche seemed to see this coming, um, but it. It takes this form. I mean, already when he's saying that God is dead, I think he does mean that for most people, the day-to-day life has nothing to do with the spiritual realm anymore at all. Um, that that idea and its in, in its power and in on a daily basis has eroded, but we have nothing else in its place. And we, we have a long history of, in our ancestors, not, not maybe ourselves, but in our ancestors and what we've inherited from them, that has made us less capable of enjoying and, and being satisfied with this world. So I would say our materialism comes with 
uh, a lack of joy in the material because it's material. While we don't, so we, we don't haven't retained the theistic the, satisfaction. So we've become worldly, yeah, but incapable of enjoying it. Yes, because in a sense, our hearts are in the transcendent. Is that the kind of what it is? It's our hearts are in the transcendent, and we measure what's available here by the sense, uh, by the by the standard of that transcendence. Why didn't it last forever? That ice cream cone I was eating. And so it's not such a good thing. You know, that is, oh God, that is so, that's, that's, now that's really strong. Now that's, gosh, you know, hell, listen, think about these conversations that people are having now about human lifespan extension. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right in the sense that the people who are most hyped for all this immortality and all of this crazy freaking, you know, mind downloadings and all this stuff, ridiculous nonsense. Um, they're all the hyper rationalistic types, aren't they? They seem to be, yes. Right. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the problem is, and I think Lee's was helpful here, but I'm not sure I think it entirely succeeded. Maybe the problem is, is that that fundamental relation that sets all this up is still pretty damn hard to characterize, right? I mean, you know, what is it that What is it that's so difficult to say clearly that keeps giving us all of these misimpressions of Nietzsche, right? I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's maybe the sense, maybe the difficulty is that one can be both worldly and transcendent at the same time, and in a way that makes both sort of worse. Is that sort of what it is? Or <laughs> or can you help here? I mean, like, what is it? Well, I think when, when worldliness becomes a kind of uh, result of uh, mm. an orientation by the transcendent, then, then it is worse worldliness. That it's a world that's been shortchanged by its, uh, by its genealogical predecessor. I wonder if this proceeds, logically proceeds, the question of the good being transcendent to a more fundamental question about metaphysics, right? And so mm. here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this in a very crude, rough way and tell me okay. if this makes any kind of sense either to Lee's or to Nietzsche. Um, it sounds to me something like Nietzsche's wants to say, look, the world used to be inspirited, right? we then shoved the spirit somewhere else. This is more about the separation of spirit from matter. Mm. Right. And that framework, then even mechanism is a problem, right? Even the sort of the scientific revolution is a problem, right? Because you've despirited nature. Yeah. You've shoved the spirit off into the transcendent where the spirit goes, the value is going to go. It's also where the vitality is going to go which is going to make anything you do down here lifeless and spiritless, right? And is going to constantly create a kind of a, an inchoate yearning for something, right? That you're never in a perennial frustration that you can see in the overconsumption, right? It almost sounds a little Sontagian, right? Like this, this idea of kind of like, you know, I, I teach aesthetics, 
Mm-hmm. So I teach Sontag's against interpretation all the time. And in a sense, what she's talking about there in a microcosm is similar to what we're talking about here. And that is, in a sense, by making what's what what the art is about something intellectual, right? You kind of de-spirit it, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what this is? Is that for Nietzsche, Nietzsche's almost kind of like wants to go back to when, in a sense, inspiritedness, insolment was in nature, sort of almost like a kind of an animism. Yeah, I, li- I like the term, you know, and uh, one of the chapters of War Speak is entitled Mind Matters. And That's why I'm raising the, this, and I'm not sure I understood that well enough. Yeah. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit in light of this if you have a few more minutes. Well, yeah, there I think Lisa was trying to uh, show ways in which Nietzsche and herself uh, were opposed to mind matter dualism. And so the this worldly character of Nietzsche has to be understood as not um, lifeless mechanism or something like this, but the kind of approach to matter that understands that thought is part of it, that will and spirit. So Nietzsche's whole um, famous phrase doctrine, will to power, is for him also meant to be a, a, a different way to try to understand what the physicists are calling force, but a way that understands it in terms of the animated character of the beings of the world. So yes, animal is a very good word for it. Yeah, because I'm thinking about Lee's as one of the most striking expressions. I'm sure that this comes from um, from uh, Nietzsche himself, but is this... this um, Oh, what is it? Vital? What is the expression? It's such a strong expression. Um, like the vital energy of, of life. Um, mm-hmm. She uses this to general, but what's the word? There's actually one expression. Uh, Invigorate? In no, it's not. I'm looking for my, I don't want to do this because this is very boring for an audience, but um, something like vitality, a certain kind of vitality. What's the expression? Uh, super abundant vitality. Ah, super abundant. Okay, okay. Yep. Despirited nature is nature absent vitality of this sort. Am I correct? Yeah. But is that actually from Nietzsche metaphysical? In other words, is the only way to save that to go back to some kind of Greek thick metaphysics? And how would Nietzsche square that? Because I have to think that Nietzsche is a modern man in, in, mm-hmm. in some important ways. He's got to accept a certain kind of materialism, right? If he's a modern thinker, right? I mean, he's not a Platonist. He's not, uh, doesn't believe in souls in the Jewish Christian sense of supernaturally animated uh, um, matter, right? Right. What, how should we understand it? his sense of inspirited nature that doesn't require a metaphysics that's simply not going to be available in a modern framework without religion. Maybe I could say this, uh, I don't know how satisfying this would be, but it seems to me that Nietzsche wants to take the notions that belong to animation, the anima, and build them into physics rather than metaphysics. That is to understand that life is a, one of the real possibilities or potentials of matter. 
And so he, he proposes, I think, in talking about the will to power, for instance, that we might try to understand the, the inanimate as the preform of the animate, where certain potentials are still undeveloped, but that are, that are present there because, and, and thought, not just life, but thought is one of the potentials of, of matter. That I think that requires that some rethinking about what matter is. Or at least it's going to mean that we can't simply take the modern physics conception of matter and energy and use that as the reference for our ordinary language talking yeah. about, about material life, right? And that's that's yeah. sort of part of a problem we've been we've been having. You know, in my own work, which is so far from this in its in its style, but not in its substance. I've actually been using a lot of Wilfred Sellers because one of the things I like about Sellers is that there's a reading of him in which, which is anti-reductionist, right? Uh, in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, when we're talking about people, it's going to be irreducibly intentional, right? There's, there's no way yeah. to get below intentionality and still be talking about what you're talking about, right? Um, and there's a little bit of Nietzsche that what you're saying now that reminds me a little bit of that. And it means that we have to be careful to not, as sellers say, take bits and pieces of the scientific image and bring them over into the manifest. Um, so we can't use matter as physics uses it to talk about our, our, our imminent being, right? Um, yes. If we do so, we've despirited it. And now... Everything that's everything that we assign value to and, and direction, everything winds up over in the transcendent, and we're now kind of like in a dead world, so to speak, right? Um, 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 that, that's just absolutely fascinating. I, last thing I promised, you knew Lee's very well. What was her personal view? In other words, did she think? that you need, you would need to have some sort of a metaphysics that is at odds with modern, modern ways of thinking, right? In order to vindicate Nietzsche's notion of inspirited reality, or do you think that she thought, did she think that it could be done in a completely naturalistic framework, um, but is going to require us to be very careful, attend to the language we use and to where we have words that are superficially similar to words that we use in science, but that we can't bring over? Or did she think you were going to have to have a kind of a thick metaphysics to be able to vindicate this idea of an inspirited light of life? I guess uh, maybe I could say this, I think, succinctly. She thought that um, metaphysics was not real <laughs> and life is and thought is, and intention is. And so what we need is, is an account that acknowledges what, what we really do experience, what we have, and maybe a bridge from that to physics so, such that we could understand the life that we have and can lead as being compatible with a proper physics. I think she thought that might involve or require emendations to physics that's what i'm that, wondering about that require it to um, yeah. to at least acknowledge 
the phenomena of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way I've done it is demarcate. Mm-hmm. What I say is if we're talking about action that belongs to the manifest image, we're not talking about organisms, we're talking about persons, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in other words, but but because we're in the manifest image, that that does not ontologically commit us to entities, right? To sort of, you know, uh, uh, persons as souls or things like that. That's the way I've chosen to do it. Sure. Um, because I don't want to do a thick metaphysics either, because I don't think it's available to us um, um, in the modern framework. And it sounds to me like you thought Lee's also would, would not, but she would think you need to do some work in physics. She wouldn't be happy with simply demarcating. She wouldn't be happy with doing it the way, sort of just demarcating different language games, the way Wittgenstein does. She wanted not, to go deeper. Yeah, not not simply, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and um, did she have a view on? Let me put this. Um, did she have any view on? the relationship of what you just characterized her as thinking to the organismal aspect of us, the mammalian evolutionary background, right? The fact that we share an enormous amount of our DNA with primates, the fact that it's very clear that a lot of the major elements, not just of our psychology, but of our language, you can trace this through mammalian reproduction up through to our closest relatives. Um, did she have a view on how the biological organismal heritage relate? In other words, I'm almost wondering whether some of this could be done completely naturalistically in that framework, right? I mean, the more and more we're learning about m- m- our mammalian <laughs> our mammalian nature, we're learning more and more things actually are turning out to be tied to our genetic and biological heritage. Did she have views about any of that in relation to these questions about some right. naturalistic? Yeah, no, I think she was very interested in in such accounts and had, uh, thanks to our uh, our employer, had occasions to, uh, to teach science to, to teach science. Yeah, and to go into the both foundational documents of, of evolutionary and genetic thinking. Um, I think she was very interested in that and very interested in the ways in which um, technological meddling with our evolutionary inheritance might transform our experience of being human. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 I could see that. Well, listen, I've, I've taken more than enough of your time. I do apologize for going over, but um, as you I can see, I get kind of interested and excited and I can't, I don't, I was one more thing, you know, it's just sort of like, uh, <laughs> Um, if we talked about Nietzsche too much, I do apologize. Um, um, could you hold up the book again? Um, the book we've been talking about um, is uh, Lee's Van Boxel's War Speak. Um, I'm sure you're doing more interviews about this book than just mine. And so I do hope that you are talking at least to some people that know Nietzsche better than me so that you could talk more about Lisa and less about Nietzsche. But I think that a good amount of Lisa's, uh, uh, Lisa's voice did come through here. Um, the, I strongly recommend the book. The book is really excellent. It's very readable, by the way. You don't need to have a PhD in philosophy to read this book. It's written very clearly, very well. Um, um, and uh, uh, Michael Grange, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. 
Thank um, you for having me on. It's um, especially, you know, just out of the blue, not knowing me and all of that. And this <laughs> is your dear friend. And this has to be so painful and wonderful at the same time. So I'm really grateful. And uh, I'm very sorry about this. You know, that really just kind of struck me that that she died right before the book was published. And that, what you know, when I realized the situation, I even wanted to do it more. Um, 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 so I'm really very sorry about about the loss of your friend. I mean, this is uh, this is devastating. Did she did she have family? I mean, was she married? Did she have children? I mean, for God's sake, I'm no no marriage or children. Uh, her her family, her immediate family, was with her at the at the time she died, along with a couple of close friends, um, and we were taking care of her. And as the department, is there any leg? Is there any? Um... Anything the department has done to sort of the, other than obviously the the normal things one does, but right. is there a memorial lecture being made? Is something being done to sort of make her? Uh, that's not uh, fully resolved yet, so okay, I, I can't say. Yeah. Obvious, okay, understood. Thank you so much, and um, uh, I look forward to hopefully maybe someday talking with you again. I hope so. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Okay.